Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm joined in today's discussion by Father Jim Barron, who is my pastor at Holy Apostles Catholic Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He was with us on this show once before. He talked to us about Quentin Tarantino and the films of Tarantino and how theology comes through in those films. So that was a fun discussion. Today we have a little bit of a different talk in front of us, Father, um, and we're going to talk about the apostolic exhortation called Familiaris Consortio. So on our last episode, this is what I mentioned would be coming up right after Thanksgiving. Hopefully you've been able to take a look at the the uh, exhortation if you're listening to this and Father Jim can help us work through some of the themes and examine it a little bit more. So Father Jim, welcome back to Credo Catholic. Thank you very much. Great to be back. Great to have you back. Yeah, I'm excited that we could get this on the calendar. So I know you did your undergrad at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Two great saints. As we were talking about this just a minute ago, you also told me that you did you did your studies at the St. John Vianney College at the University of St. Thomas. Yeah, the college seminary. And on top of that, you told me that Minneapolis of Minneapolis, St. Paul used to be St. Anthony mm-hmm. until Protestants decided they didn't want to name their city after a Catholic saint. Well, you had a lot of the, the Greek resurgence, Indianapolis, Minneapolis. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I've not heard that before. Yep. It's unfortunate. So it could have been the twin cities of St. Anthony and St. Paul. And instead we have Minneapolis and St. Paul. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then from there you went to Rome, you studied at the North American College, and then you did your sacred theology licentiate at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Life. That is correct. So I thought you'd be a great candidate to talk to us about this writing from Pope St. John Paul II on marriage and family life. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit. <laughs> just just a, just a bit, I imagine. So this apostolic exhortation, which is different from an encyclical, and that's why, by the way, we're not using the wonderful encyclicalpedia bumper for this episode. However, I think you could come up with a new one. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe we'll see. Maybe I'll surprise listeners. A- apostolic exhortation doesn't roll off the tongue as well. <laughs> it doesn't. It really doesn't. <laughs> but this was, uh, as I was reading this and preparing for this episode, I learned that this was published on November 22nd, 1981. And that, that year was the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, Mm -hmm. a solemnity that of course we just celebrated last Sunday as I'm releasing this, we're releasing this one day after Advent one. So we'll be eight days past that, but we'll also be releasing this just after the Thanksgiving holiday. And as we begin Advent and Thanksgiving holiday, Advent, Christmas, New Year's, these are times of year when people are around family a lot. <laughs> and so some of our listeners might be traveling back from time with family, might be still enjoying time with family, might be feeling like they need to decompress a little bit after time with family. And as we continue in this holiday season, I think it's it's a good idea to step back a little bit. Think back to 1981, the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, when John Paul II wrote this in the aftermath of the fifth ordinary general assembly of the synod of bishops on the topic of the Christian family uh, and explore some of these, these themes that the church holds as timeless for all families today. And there's a lot of great information I think in here for, um, for us to chew on as faithful Catholics, those of us who have families and those of us who don't, this also applies to single people, uh, the voluntarily celibate and virgin and St. Pope John Paul II. Uh, I always mix this up. Pope St. John Paul II, uh, 
draws attention to that as well. So I'm excited to get into all of that, Father. But maybe I'll start with this. So if I'm reading this as a Catholic, I look at this and say this was written 38 years ago. A lot has changed since then, right? This is uh, the subtitle of this is the role of the Christian family in the modern world. And the modern world 38 years ago looked a lot different from the modern world today. So if I'm being a skeptic, this doesn't apply today, right? Does this hold true? You're, you're, you know, you're a pastor in the church here. You are intimately familiar with the struggles of today's families. How true do you think this still is? Does this still apply or should it still apply to what families face today? Well, they say that as much as human beings change, human nature doesn't. And the family, it's, it's the primordial experience of every human being. Throughout all of history, there are certain fundamental things that will not change that are going to be perennially true. And that question of, is this still relevant, I think would stem from kind of a skepticism about the nature of things that people experience today, that we want to deconstruct everything that's come before in order to try to construct something from scratch. And so, you know, what the, the, the points that John Paul II is making in this exhortation, as well as everything else that led to it philosophically, and that has been unpacked from it, both philosophically and theologically, it's always going to be applicable to the life of the family, because the family is just such a constitutive part of our human nature. Uh, there will always be things that need to be modified, new challenges that will have to be faced. But, you know, let's face it, it's, uh, they're, they're just some things that are always going to be challenging to the family itself since the dawn of time to the end of time. Yeah, I, I read uh, as I was reading this, there was one paragraph close to the beginning that caught my eye. This is in paragraph six, if any of our listeners are following along at home. But I'm just going to read this short paragraph in which Pope St. John Paul II highlights some of the good things that we can recognize in the modern world for today's families and some of the the perils. So the kind of the promises and perils. And, and uh, the Pope writes, on the one hand, there is a more lively, and this, he's listing good things here. On the one hand, there is a more lively awareness of personal freedom and greater attention to the quality of interpersonal relationships in marriage. On the other hand, signs are not lacking of a disturbing degradation of some fundamental values, a mistaken theoretical and practical concept of the independence of the spouses in relation to each other, serious misconceptions regarding the relationship of authority between parents and children, the concrete difficulties that the family itself experiences in the transmission of values, the growing number of divorces, the scourge of abortion, the ever more frequent recourse to sterilizations, ster sterilization, the appearance of a truly contraceptive mentality. So that's a pretty big list of some, some bad things, some perils for the family, some challenges facing the modern family that we see. And if you go on just uh, in that same section, just you know one paragraph down, you see the claim that at the root of these negative phenomena, there are frequently lies a corruption of the idea and the experience of freedom. I'd like to talk about that just a little bit, because in our modern minds, modern secular culture tells us that the ultimate good is liberty versus freedom. The ultimate good is triumph of the will, the triumph of our own human autonomy, our individualism, our capacity for self-determination to determine exactly what I will and won't do in my life. That, I think, is held up in our secular culture as the highest of goods. The family flies in the face of that because the family is fundamentally a complex sort of intertangling of various people for various reasons. And you, you can't deny your family no matter how hard you try. So it's true that you may be able to walk away from your family and legally disown them in a way, but you're never going to be able to, to you know, purge yourself of the genetic material that 
is in you that comes from your parents, et cetera. So the family, I think, flies in the face of some of our ideas of individualism and autonomy. But I want to ask you, you know, what what do you think reading this? What does the church say more broadly about the family and what it says to us about the true nature of freedom? Well, it's been a problem from the very beginning, right? You know, Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit because they were promised that they would be like gods, but without God, that they had to obtain for themselves this sort of divine status, the autonomy that is really proper to God alone. And our the fact that we are creatures means that we are intrinsically dependent by our nature, but yet that desire for autonomy, for independence, for you know, sort of a complete isolated fullness of being is just not possible. It's a delusion. And, you know, that's rooted in the very fact of the fabric of our nature. Throughout all of history, there have been limitations on what we could accomplish and therefore limitations on that notion of autonomy and independence. Uh, There are always consequences to actions. There is always a law that has to be enforced by some authoritative body. There's always somebody who needs to, you know, help make the clothes that I wear, grow the food that I eat. Uh, now we are so removed from a lot of those things that root us in a sense of dependence that we succumb to that delusion that autonomy is possible and sort of the, the sickness of individualism that has, has pervaded a lot of our Western culture. And so on the one hand, it sees the idea of freedom as freedom from, that I'm free from laws, I'm free from obligations and responsibilities, and that as if that were the the ideal. Now, we could speak of legitimate freedom from, you know, to be free from oppressive constraint. Right, persecution. Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. So there is a legitimate consideration of freedom from things uh, that we want to consider to promote, you know, especially freedom from illness. Um, th- that's, a, that's a good. However, even if you're in the middle of a jail or in a hospital bed sick with something, you can still be free for something. There's a freedom for that is higher than that freedom from. So a freedom for virtue, for goodness, for love. That's that's the ultimate uh, pinnacle of that sense of freedom. It's not just absence of constraint, constraints on my will or my physical person, but that ability for my will to desire and to obtain what is authentically good, the good of the other, as much as the good of myself. And so often, the good of the self is gotten on the way of seeking the good of the other. And I think that makes sense, especially given what the Pope says later on in this exhortation, when he talks about how the role of parents in the family is to create the structures and environment necessary for the flourishing of their children. This comes through very strongly in the section where he's talking about the duties of parents in the education of their children. But more broadly speaking, I think the important thing is that families are the environments that allow or that give their members the freedom for things, right? So rather than freeing them from all the constraints that we want to be freed from uh, in a negative sense, like you said, the freedom for this. And ultimately, our lives need to be oriented towards God. The ultimate telos or end of our lives is God. And so the family, as a a small apostolate, I think uh, the Pope even uses that word in this exhortation. The family is a small. The family is a small apostolate that helps orient all of its members toward God in that way, giving them the freedom for service. So that's a beautiful way of understanding it and contrasting the church's view of freedom with our own secular one um, in this modern era, which I think the the freedom from is probably better thought of just as liberty, right? Because liberty isn't. It's not really ordered to anything except oneself. 
there, there's a variation in that. I think um, you know, every society is gathered around some kind of sacred principle at its center that holds everybody together. That's the sense of religion. Every society, even an atheistic society, is intrinsically religious. Religio means bound, bound together. Think of ligaments that right. keep your muscles and bones together. Um, what is binding us together is this sacred principle. And in America, for so long, we would say that sacred core of who we are is freedom. But I think especially after 9-11, we were confronted with the fact that we mean completely different things when we use that word. And so there are some who mean freedom in a sense of license, and they see the role of the government or society or social media as kind of re-enfranchising my autonomous preferences versus the idea of all of these other things safeguarding uh the, you know, a, a maximal amount of freedom for the greatest number. That's another approach. But the, the, dif, the varying definitions of freedom uh, have really caused a problem in the West. And it, on the one hand, that's the heart of a lot of the crises that we're facing. On the other hand, the church has a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the authentic meaning of this. And as you said, the family in that context, uh, it's, it's, the irony is not lost on me that we've got on the one hand, people who are very emphatic about uh, sustaining and protecting the environment because we are a part of our environment and all the, the climate issues. And yet oftentimes they're indifferent to the most proximate climate, which is our, our family, our environment of which we are a part is the family and, you know, protecting baby seals and waterfalls. And that's great. I'm all for, you know, not wasting things and, and trying to be good stewards of creation. At the same time, we have to recognize the environment that most immediately forms us even before national parks and icebergs, in remote places of the world, the family most immediately influences my humanity. You know, I need to be sustained by natural resources, but nothing can replace and nothing can hardly make up for the failure, as John Paul II would say later, for the family. Uh, they need to have that, they are that that first place where we become human in the best sense of the word. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And when you mentioned the original freedom from tyranny that that shaped the founding of the United States and shaped much of our understanding in this country about freedom. One thing that occurred to me is that even that was a, is one of the good examples of a freedom from that you mentioned, right? Freedom from an oppressive tyranny. But I think the problem is that that sort of transmuted over time and became an overall freedom that was oriented around the self. And so the same mentality that started with, I need to be free from oppressive tyranny eventually leads with no fault divorce is a good thing because I need to be free to make my own choices and decisions. Well, if you can see that original sense of freedom is just, you can't tell me what to do. Exactly. Then yeah, it's going to lead to these other things. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, not digging on country music, but you hear a lot of these songs about yeah, America and freedom <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. And right. that's what it means to be American. Well, eh, no, that's kind of, that's, that's a really a, a gross characterization and, and an unfortunate consequence of that train of thought. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. Um, before we dig into a little bit more of the content of this, I want to take a step back. I, I said originally that uh, John Paul II in here wrote that this is also a problem for single people as well. So for listeners who are listening to this and thinking, this doesn't really apply to me, maybe a good conversation. I like the things that Father Jim is saying, but I'm single and this doesn't have immediate um, immediate impact to me or for me, what would you say to that? Because I think this is a very important conversation for all Christians to have because the family is such an important part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, different causes and efforts surrounding certain societal ills 
whether it's homelessness or hunger or abuse or human trafficking. And these are real evils and plagues and burdens on society. If you go to the heart of them all, at somewhere it is related to the breakdown of a family dynamic. And and so for even single people who are looking for a place, kind of the, the most bang for their buck, if you will, when it comes to investing time, energy, resources to try to help make the world a quote unquote better place, you can hardly think of a better place to start than at the very source of it all, the family. Uh, but then again, we all come from a family. I think many of us in our generation, we were sort of raised on Disney movies where your family is the people that you choose or the kind of the people that you fall into uh, into their company and you have sort of a common enterprise and you know the ideal of the orphan, if you will. Most Disney movies have kind of the loner who becomes a member of a family amongst friends. And that idea has, I think, pervaded our psyche where we kind of forget that, no, we have a family that isn't of our choosing. Can we serve them? What can we learn from this situation? How does this shape and form us as well as us shape and form it? So, you know, everybody having has some direct one degree of separation relationship from a family or a family context, good or bad. And so whether somebody is married or a kid growing up in a home with mom, dad, both, one other, you know, insert variations, um, everybody has a responsibility to promote the health of society by supporting and promoting the family. Um, and Christ describes there three different types of, of um People in relationship to marriage, there are those um, who are, when he describes eunuchs, uh, there are those who are made eunuchs, those who are born eunuchs, and those who make themselves eunuchs. Whether or not he's specifically speaking about castrating the physical unit, he's discussing the idea of there's a there's a there's an ability for every person, no matter their context, to support the building up of the kingdom. And there are some who are made that way for one reason or another. And, you know, maybe we can talk about certain uh, dispositions, whether it's psychological, genetic, whatever, um, that they would prevent them from going into marriage. And so they still have something to contribute. They still have an important role to play. Uh, There are those who make them, who are made eunuchs for one reason or another. They might find themselves in a situation not of their doing that would prevent them from entering into a healthy and full marriage. And they still have something to contribute. Very important. And then there are those who make themselves eunuchs, you know, people who choose celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, uh, you know, consecrated virginity. Those are examples of people who decide to dedicate their life in witness through this particular vocation outside of marriage. So there's something to be said about, you know, the, the single people as well as you know, the married people in their in their responsibility for supporting the family. Yeah, and I don't even remember exactly where this was. It was, I think, close to the end of this exhortation, but John Paul II says that those people who are unmarried, who are intentionally celibate or virgin, they still have the opportunity for spiritual motherhood and fatherhood because we are one church of God and we all need each other. And there are those who are mature in Christ and those who are immature in Christ and those who are immature in Christ need spiritual mothers, mothers and fathers to help them become mature in Christ. And so I think that's a really important charism that is the calling of every single person with perhaps the exception of a hermit, but even a hermit, I think could have a spiritual child in the sense that a hermit could pray for that person every day. I mean, I I think essentially it's the calling of every person who's unmarried to at least be a spiritual mother and father to others in the church. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think that's a self-understanding that really needs to be emphasized. You know, whenever I give a talk or a homily on vocations, 
I usually emphasize, you know, the priesthood, religious life, married life, permanent diaconate, and then inevitably a hand goes up. Well, Father, what about the single life, the single vocation? And you know, I've got to tread lightly because I know this is a very sensitive subject for some, but when we speak about vocation, we have to be careful to distinguish, is it just something that can I call my state in life a vocation if I'm just here until something better comes along? Yeah. Is somebody, has somebody chosen the single life? There's a certain response to that vocation that makes it a vocation. There's an invitation to the idea of being a priest or to be married or to be religious, as well as an invitation to be single. But, you know, sometimes well-intentioned but misguided folks speak of the single vocation as if, again, I'm just in this until I get married. Well, that's not quite a vocation per se. Right. Um, You know, if you decide to live that way and that comes to that self-understanding of being a spiritual mother, a spiritual father, a spiritual brother or a sister, that this is who I am choosing to become, responding to God's invitation in this way. You know, St. Paul, he encouraged the idea of virginity and, and, the you know he would he would prefer that somebody be you know, sort of spared the the different demands and responsibilities that might come along with marriage, but it's not a sin. It's a good thing. It's a holy thing. Um, but at the same time, if somebody chooses to live a single life, that that we can speak of more in the sense of vocation rather than again just I haven't met the right person. Um, but it comes that's the source of that self understanding of spiritual motherhood or spiritual fatherhood. And, you know, for couples who are in that very painful situation where they are not able to have kids, they still have to come to understand themselves as a mother and a father in this way. It's a real way, spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood. Uh, it, it really not only shouldn't be discounted, it needs to be emphasized to your point because everybody is, has this call written into our very being as men and women, our capacity to be a mom and a dad biologically, but also spiritually. Right. I mean, I think it's it's beautiful that St. Joseph was not the father of Jesus biologically, um, but he was responsible for, you know, looking after him as he grew up and raising him and being the head of the Holy Family. Uh, in the same way, Mary was only the mother of one child biologically ever. And so she was, you know, after the birth of Jesus, obviously never had another child after that. And yet she is the mother of us all. So she has as her spiritual children, the entire church of God. And that's a beautiful image for any single person or any, any a mother or father who cannot have children of their own or can't have more children of their own. Mm-hmm. Let's move on a little bit though. There's a, uh, as I was reading this, I, I read a, a passage that really jumped out at me and I think it's fantastic. Uh, but I have, uh, what, what we might term sort of a, uh, a cheeky secular critique of this. And this is where, uh, John Paul II is writing about the role of women. And, and just recall the, the very beginning of this, he says, one of the, one of the wonderful things about today is that we're more conscious, um, broadly speaking, we're more conscious of the rights of women and the fact that they need to be treated well and they have inherent dignity. And this is something that, you know, there's, we, we can't, we can't beat around the bush on this. This has not always been the case throughout history, right? The, uh, the strong have often dominated the weak throughout all of human history. That's, that's a common theme that repeats and repeats. But nowadays we have a much better understanding of the inherent dignity of women and the equal rights of men and women. And that's wonderful. But one of the things that John Paul II says is that the unfortunate thing is that we sort of have then led led that to lead us down this path where it actually sort of undermines the true dignity and calling of women. And he says that society must be structured in such a way that wives and mothers are not in practice compelled to work outside the home. So that to our modern ears, it makes us perk up, I think. Like, wait, wait what do you say? They, they should be at home. 
Um, it's not, that's first of all, not what he said. But, uh, if you look at the actual text, he said that society needs to be structured so that they don't have to work outside of the home. And he, he explicitly says, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the exact wording, but he explicitly says that basically women can do these things that men can do. It's not about what they can or cannot do outside the home, but that society needs to be structured so that they don't have to work outside the home. So is he just calling us back to the 1950s? You know, uh, well, first I, I think it needs to be said that yeah, the church has not, uh, has not been sort of this big female oppressive machine like she's accused of being, you know, look at the different uh, advances that she's contributed, not only with the sacrament of marriage that, you know, you don't hear this question in the Catholic marriage, who gives away this bride? She's not there as a commodity. She's there of her own free will. And that's a great leap forward for women's rights that took place early in the life of the church. Um, some of the most influential people in history have been women in the church. Um, you know, look at the list of saints, the the queens, the mother superiors, the you know some people that were effectively lay men or lay women that had kind of a relationship to different religious communities, but they themselves were very active and influential in the world. So not even to mention Mary, of course. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, th- there's sort of the the black legend about sort of the misogyny of the Catholic Church, and you know, granted, women had not had a prominent role in in the history during which the church has been a part, but at the same time, the church has had has a very stellar list of very influential and powerfully good women. Um, well, I think there's just, I, I want to hear you finish that thought, but just one thing that occurs to me is that, you know, I think it's true that in the visible leadership structure of the church, because we have an all male clerical priesthood, um, it's a lot harder to see women visibly. Right. And mm-hmm. so like the list of popes, for example, is all men because to be a priest, you have to be a man, but that is, that's, you know, you're sort of baking in a lot of assumptions into that. And one of the assumptions is if you're important in the life of the church, then you will be visible. Mm-hmm. But the entire life of Mary flies in the face of that, right? Because Mary is the most important figure in the entire Bible besides the person of Jesus himself. And we read about her at the Annunciation, at the Visitation, at the birth of Jesus, at the first miracle of Jesus, and then at his crucifixion, right? And his, and his burial mm-hmm. and that whole interim period during his public ministry, she is, you know, quietly in the background, praying, supporting, um, preparing for her role as spiritual mother of the church. And so that's a beautiful image of how she is of, uh, you know, prime importance as again, the most important person in the entire Bible besides the person of Jesus himself. And yet she is not the headliner, so to speak. Right. Well, I think a lot of that's related to our culture of celebrity that yeah. it's just, you have to be famous for being famous if, or for any reason at all possible. It's more desirable. Blessed are those who have a big following on Twitter. Right. Yeah. You know, and so some of it is the measured blue check within mark. that. Yeah. That's kind of measured in that, that, that cultural context. Um, but you know, the, the reality is, is I think no one has done more to defend authentic femininity uh, than, than the Catholic church. And let me unpack that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the the standard for the sexual revolution and sort of a modern post-Marxist understanding of human rights and human equality has effectively set the standard for uh, thriving humanity as men. You know what should what can a man do, and a woman a woman should have should be able to do that in order to be equal, and and it's really glossed over the fact that that is the most misogynist position you could have because it's denying what is most uniquely feminine. There are some things that men cannot do that women can. And they, they sort of like bear children being the most obvious one. Yeah. They have certain instincts and, and um, there's a certain openness to 
to humanity. In many ways, they humanize the world in so many wonderful ways, but it's glossed over. It's forgotten because, again, the standard is set as what can men do, and that's what it means to be equal versus well, there's a, there's a great distinction that can't be overcome, nor should it be overcome. And that distinction does not mean disequality or inequality. Rather, equality does not mean sameness. There can be a real difference in that. And so, you know, this question about, uh, or the point that John Paul II is making to get back to that, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the societal trends towards that, you know, men had traditionally not worked in the home. And so in order to be more equal, women have to be out in the workplace. Now, John Paul II speaks about the feminine genius and the importance of women having a say in the affairs of, of the public world. And that's an incredibly important thing. Um, we have some very influential and successful women in the business world, in the political world, in the economic world, that without their contribution, we would be worse off for it. Uh, the point that you emphasize is that society should not be structured in such a way where uh, wives and mothers cannot be in the home. That's a big societal injustice on the one hand, because it sort of, it's, it's built on the fact that a family cannot exist on a single income. Uh, we, we consider our advancements nowadays, but you know, even if a, even if mom or dad, a husband or wife wanted to work at home, many people can't because they need two incomes. Right. And you know, if they want to either afford a rock and roll lifestyle, or if they want to just basically subsist, it becomes less and less possible. I know more and more young families making that decision Catholic, non-Catholic, non-religious, um, they want to have one of the parents in the home on the one hand, practically because they recognize, well, how much are they paying for daycare? Right. There's a pretty and, big offset. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, as the public health crisis of child obesity has gotten a lot of focus, it really hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been compared to the, the decrease in rate of typically moms working outside of the home or the, the increase of moms working outside of the home. And the fact that, you know, somebody isn't there making nutritious meals right. and, you know, kids got to go get fast food. Nobody's watching their meal choices, um, you know, kind of getting them to get up and move to kick Physical out. Physical activity. Kick out yep. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the societal difficulties we're facing are directly related to this fact that there is not someone at home. It doesn't necessarily have to be mom, but it's traditionally been mom, especially because the first couple of years of a kid's life, exactly. he needs mom, he or she needs mom. Yeah. So that's, that kind of goes to the, the unique capabilities, you know, mom's moms can bear children, moms can breastfeed children. Those are not things that, that men can do. Right. So there's, there's a biological orientation at the very least in the early years that, um, that women have a capacity for that men simply don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the emphasis on what is uniquely feminine is, has gotten some traction. I think you hear a lot about second and third wave feminism and third wave feminism effectively tries to, uh, enfranchise women according to male standards while trashing men, to create a place for women. And there have been many uh, influential feminist philosophers who have rejected that. And, and rightly so, because they see underlying it is that inherent misogyny that discounts what is authentically feminine as if it were unnecessary or superfluous. And even there's, there's a, in the marketplace, there are a lot of uh, businesses that are getting pretty savvy about working around this and packaging things in such a way where what they effectively want is a, is a more effective workforce. Whereas I think it was uh, Google and Apple they offer to uh, freeze their female employees' eggs. Yes, I uh, remember reading about that. Yeah, so that then when they're ready, then they can have kids. Well, what that's basically saying is we want you to be a dedicated worker. Squeeze to, out the productivity now. Yes. Yeah. And, yep. And so then you can kind of give the best of your years to us. And then, you know, later on, you can do whatever you need and to do. And that's misogynistic. Yeah, um, yeah, very much. Well, and, and it's, a, it's a new form of, of slavery. You know, I use that word because 
what has always been the bulwark against slavery since the, from the very beginning of human history, when we've started enslaving other people, um, was the family. They would split up families right. on the auction blocks. They would separate husbands from wives because that meant you had someone to live for and potentially someone to try to escape for someone that was outside of that work environment that you thought about. And so a lot of these places are very, very happy to have single unmarried people work for them because they'll basically do whatever you tell them to more yeah. or less. You know, they don't have a family expecting them home by a certain hour. And, uh, it, and it really is kind of a, it's a sort of a wage slavery anymore. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, that sounds kind of radical. I'm not wearing my Darshiki and wearing my crunchy granola. <laughs> no, stocks, I mean, but. it might sound radical on its face, but as you know, I work in the private sector and yeah. I see it every day. Yeah. And as a Catholic working in the private sector, I think you have to be very intentional about setting your boundaries and making those boundaries known that you are going to go home at this time for a family dinner and you are not going to answer emails when you are with your kids and reading and you are going to not work on the weekends because that's the time that your kids need you and they need you there to help form them and mold them and just spend time with them. Yep. So I think that's really important. Let's pivot a little bit here and talk about specifically marriage um, rather than just generally family. Um, there's a lot of conversation today about marriage, obviously redefining marriage, reconceptualizing marriage, doing away with marriage, if it's a patriarchal institution, et cetera. The church has always had a lot to say about marriage. There's a lot to say about marriage in the Bible. And today, or at least in this encyclical, um, John Paul II talks about some of the challenges that marriages face. And he emphasizes the unity of the conjugal act, the conjugal, uh, conjugal love, but he also talks about how this conjugal this conjugal communion is characterized not only by the unity, but also by its indissolubility, that it cannot be dissolved. Mm -hmm. This is a really important and I think misunderstood um, belief of the church that marriage, once ordained by God, cannot be undone. It obviously goes back to scripture, um, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But more broadly speaking, or maybe more using more details. Why does the church hold the indissolubility of marriage? And what does that understanding do to our idea of the family? Sure. Well, we can talk about natural marriage and sacramental marriage. And natural marriage is a good in and of itself, but there's sacramental marriage, which transcends it, rooted in the baptism of the two persons, the husband and the wife who enter into that sacramental marriage. And so that's got a supernatural value. But even natural marriage has a social value and a personal value that is really undeniable. So um, when you say natural marriage, are you talking about the conjugal act of man and woman? Are you talking about, you know, a legal contract that the state recognizes? So the, the, the language of marriage is that free and indissoluble commitment of one's life to another that is for the creation of a family. And you know, all of those features have to be there for a natural marriage. You know, if, if, Two people freely get together and want to share their life, but don't want kids. That's not marriage. If we, if <gasps> people want to get together, and, yeah, if they want to, you know, ha share vacations and maybe have some kids, but not be faithful just to each other, but to have you know an open marriage, not marriage. That's not marriage. Okay. So natural marriage is is a good thing, and it has certain um, qualities or characteristics that are intrinsic to it being marriage. Uh, okay. So, but to, to to distinguish this from sacramental marriage, then so to. Um, to atheists can have a natural marriage. If they were never baptized, then yeah. Right. Yep. yep. They would not have a sacramental marriage if they were not married in the church. 
Correct. Even if they were not baptized but married in the church, that would still be a natural marriage, but not a sacramental okay. marriage. Got it. Uh, but yeah, sacramental marriage is for two baptized persons and for Catholics to be married in the Catholic church. Um, and, and the graces that come along with that elevated natural institution. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said about both of them that are both uh, benefits that are both social and personal. The, the social stability is undeniable. The largest category of people under the poverty line are single mothers. To have two parents at home, that automatically sets the kids heads and shoulders above their one parent household peers for social uh, social stability, for their own prosperity in life, for their economic educational prospects. attainment. Yeah, it's 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 incredible the difference uh, that that is there when you've got a mom and a dad in, in an intact home. It doesn't have to be Shangri-La. You know, they can, it, it's just the fact that they've got those people there. And so that sense of indissolubility reinforces the fact that it's always an evil to split up. Is it the lesser of two evils to split up versus stay together? You know, there, there's sometimes where physical abuse, uh, severe emotional abuse happens. There can be toxic environments that a separation might be recommended that's not going to help the kids necessarily aside from removing them from that toxic environment and that, that it's itself a help, but it's still in some ways disadvantaging them in other ways. Um, but also the personalistic aspect of it, the bond of marriage creates a stable environment in which we kind of work out our stuff. It fosters that ability to be vulnerable. If I, if I'm always worried that my, my spouse can just pick up and leave, then I'm going to be a bit more guarded and not as sort of authentic in my humanity. Now, some people see that as, you know, I'm letting myself go and that we should never do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're, even if you're not quote unquote on the market, always put in an effort for your spouse and, and for yourself. Um, but this idea of, you know, we've all got baggage, we've all got sin, we've all got selfishness that needs to be worked out. And this is a stable place to do it. Hence the indissolubility of marriage creates that fixed environment that's safe, that you've committed yourself to the other, which is itself a wonderful expression of human freedom and also the enacting itself of human maturity. You become more mature the more you not only commit yourself, but follow through on those commitments in relationships. Um, you know, Yogi Berra said, man can spend his whole life as a jerk and never know it, but not if he's married. And what he's getting at is, you know, what we mean in Genesis when God saw that it is not good for the man to be alone or the woman either, that we need another person to commit ourselves to in, in a long term, not just long term until I don't feel like it anymore, but this is how it's going to be. I've got to learn to adapt myself to the situation instead of trying to always adapt the situation to my needs, my preferences. There's a, there's a real important kind of interaction with this indissolubility that does help to build our character and mature us as human beings. So let me play literally devil's advocate here and say, you know, what about, I understand the, the child stability point. If parents stay together, children will be better off statistically or probabilistically speaking. Let's say you have a couple, they get together, everything really jives. They get along well, they help each other grow mature. They have children, their children grow and leave the house, eventually have kids of their own. So now these people are grandparents. They're in their late 50s, early 60s, and they decide that now it's sort of time to go their separate ways because they've helped each other reach all the maturity they need to, and they can go you know, explore themselves, find themselves, find other people perhaps, et cetera. How does, how does, that, how does that fit into what the church is saying? Well, you know, there's always a snapshot uh, 
case by case basis or where we try to, you know, do casuistic ethics. But, you know, I would want to know the history of the people. They're obviously on a house that had been built on sand. Uh, if that's where they are after this great progression of, of life and commitments that they've made and the growth of their children and then the, the advent of grandchildren. And then all of a sudden they find themselves here. There's no all of a sudden in that, you yeah, know, knowing sure. human nature, they had to have already had perhaps some misconceptions about what the whole project was in the first place. But also, you know, as the, people say they grew apart, that's the problem. Yeah. A lot of families, they devote themselves to their kids and their kids schedules and they forget how to be married. And so when they find themselves empty nesters, that's a big uh, time when, when couples split because they don't know how to be a couple anymore. They've been a parent for so long. They've been chauffeur. They've been calendars, calendar maker, you know, breadwinner, all these other things. But to be husband, to be wife, that's something that they really, if they're going to make it, they've got to really focus on that, build, rebuilding that relationship. The ideal is to never have gotten to that point in the first place. Right. From the very beginning to prioritize that marital relationship, that spousal relationship, from which everything else will be strengthened. That's the that's the concentric core. And if that's not solid, neither will anything else really be. Yeah, that makes sense. And from a sacramental perspective, I think one of the things that I like to just sort of meditate on, because these these sacraments are all mysteries, right? We we understand them to some extent, but they're not totally accessible to our reason, but each of the sacraments is a moment in time in which God touches our reality, right? And God is eternal and totally outside of time. And when he infuses us with that grace through a sacrament, it's really, it's really a timeless thing. I mean, in the truest sense of the word, there is no, uh, there's no, um, you know, statute of limitations on baptism, right? Or ordination. Like you can be, you can be laicized, but that doesn't remove the grace of ordination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of an administrative action where you can't, you can't celebrate the sacraments anymore, right? Sure. Uh, baptism, permanent. Marriage, permanent. Confirmation, permanent. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, it's just these times where sort of like the fabric of our temporal existence is sort of permeated by eternity for for what seems to us like a brief moment, but the sacraments effectiveness is forever. Um, and you might say, you know, confession is, is a, is a different example, but it's not really because confession, right? The slate is wiped clean at that moment for everything you've ever done in your entire life. Right. And then it's true that we sort of bring our own temporal stuff back into it and sin again, but the confession, whenever we go back to it again, wipes this way, the slate clean for us for all eternity. And with that understanding, marriage is, a very permanent thing. And it's not for us to dissolve if it's a sacramental marriage, right? Because, because it has been touched with this sort of eternal timelessness by God himself and infused with that grace. Is that an accurate understanding? Well, in the sense that that habitual grace that comes to us through the different sanctifying moments and acts of God that take place in marriage. Yeah. That's an eternal reality. Now the sacrament of marriage is not an eternal reality in the sense that when we die, sacrament ceases, right? Um, but the effects of it and what it's meant to do, yeah, that lasts. That's uh, one of my favorite stories is Blessed Karl of Austria. He was the last emperor of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. He and his wife Zita, on the day of their wedding, as they're processing back down the aisle, he leans over to her and says, now we must get each other to heaven. Like that's an understanding yeah. of the, that vocation of helping these other people, your, what, your spouse, your children, to get to heaven. And those graces are exactly, you know, given in marriage for that purpose. And they're always there. That's, that's the thing that kind of should blow our mind is 
you know, the sacraments, the graces of the sacrament of marriage don't end on the wedding day. They become available. And in many ways, you have a right to them. God sort of commits himself in that sacrament to the couple that they always now have a right to those graces, which he freely offers. And they just have to sort of tap into them, receive them, allow them to sort of take root in their lives more. Um, But that's, you know, God's commitment to the couple as well as the couple's commitment to each other. In section 57 of this exhortation, John Paul II writes about the relationship between marriage and the Eucharist. And I think if we don't always mention the Eucharist, always come back to the Eucharist on this podcast, we're, we're doing it wrong, right? Because that's the source and summit of, of our Christian life. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Highlight kind of the connection between marriage and the Eucharist. What is the connection there? I, re- I would just sum it up in one word, covenant. You know, we speak about marriage as a covenant, which is that partnership of the whole life, which is free, full, and faithful, and fruitful. Well, that's exactly what marriage or the Eucharist is. It's the new and eternal covenant that we enter into with Christ that's meant to be free, full, faithful, and fruitful. That you know, we, we come forward to receive the Eucharist uh, as a free action. We shouldn't be constrained to do it, which is why you know, if a kid's protesting his first communion prep, mom and dad, hold off. Hold off until he's ready. This yeah. shouldn't be kind of a forced moment. Um, and the totality of life. This is, this is where it branches into divorce for, or excuse me, communion for divorce and civilly remarried, that there's something in that situation now that the fullness of the covenant is not, is not present uh, as, long as, you know, as long as that irregular situation persists. And that's why communion is not available for those who are divorced and civilly remarried or someone who is in a state of mortal sin. The covenant has been ruptured in, in a real way. And just like in, in, a, in a marriage, if mom and dad have a real big fight, if there's a, a, a rupture in that relationship, reconciliation needs to happen. Action must be taken to repair that broken relationship before they would have you know, the conjugal act again, for example. I mean, you know, this is from an outsider's perspective, but that would seem to make the most sense. Is, you know, I couldn't imagine the, the conjugal act being um, participated in fully if there was still this major resentment and rift between the couple. And just so why we go to confession before receiving communion, if we've committed a mortal sin, the covenant has been violated and we must be restored to it. But also that sense of fruitfulness, you know, marriage is to start a family. It's to, to have that spiritual and biological, if possible, motherhood and fatherhood. We receive the Eucharist and should expect it to bear fruit in our lives, that we should see God's action shining through us in a real way. And the, the Eucharist is meant to be received fruitfully. We can throw up barriers to it. You know, we can effectively contracept, if you will, the spiritual graces God wants to give us in the Eucharist. But if we're living the fullness of that covenant, mirrored in the covenant of marriage, then we will be living a more fruitful Eucharistic life. Um, and I, one of my favorite things to do in a wedding is have the couple kneel before the altar for the liturgy of the Eucharist. When they hear the words of institution, this is my body given up for you, that's not just Christ saying it to his church. Those are the marching orders for that couple, as well as this is the cup of the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. That's enriching them and making them a sign of that covenant that Christ is enacting in his blood. So as they give of themselves to each other, they are also that sign of Christ's love into the world. And the Eucharist is, is you know, it's the source and summit, but it has a beautiful mirror in that sacrament of marriage that is unique to that sacrament of marriage. So I think all the conversation in the Catholic world about you know, who can receive communion and, again, communion for divorce and civilly remarried, 
that has a lot to do with one another. And if you don't understand the Eucharist as a, as a covenant, then it might just seem like an act of fellowship or hospitality. And if that's all it is, then of course it doesn't matter or it wouldn't seem to matter as much for these other situations. But if it's intrinsically about a relationship and what a relationship really is, especially a nuptial relationship, then yeah, it does matter. And everything else surrounding it is a natural consequence from the fact of what it is. That's beautiful. And there's so much to unpack there. I know. <laughs> the So I, I want to back up. You you uh, you mentioned this part in the, in the wedding mass where the couple kneels in the front. This is my body given up for you. That is, I think you're right to highlight that, right? That is an example of what the couple should do towards one another, right? They give of themselves totally. And this is why the conjugal act is unitive, but also procreative, right? It's unitive because they are giving of themselves totally to each other. And it's procreative because they are um, giving of themselves to each other, for each other with openness to the, the newness of life. And elsewhere in this exhortation, John Paul II talks about how the purpose of the family, let me find the quote here. Yeah, section 28, the fundamental task of the family is to serve life. So I think that's an interesting claim for a number of reasons, but the two words that jump out at me are serve and life. We often think of the fundamental task of the person, the family, insert noun here, is to pursue happiness, pursue self-actualization, pursue freedom from liberty, etc. But here he's saying, no, the, the fundamental task is to serve. And what are we serving as a family? We're serving life. So this, I think, wraps in a lot of ideas, but sort of ties a bow on a lot of the church's teaching on openness to life, on, as John Paul II calls in this exhortation, the scourge of abortion, why it's so important to look after the downtrodden. He also mentions care for the elderly, right? This is the fundamental task of the family, and it's oriented toward this person. So one of the major challenges for any family today is to properly prioritize serving life by focusing on each other and then by, by turning outward from their little apostolate of the family and serving life. So as a pastor, any, any practical ideas for how families can better do that? Sure. Well, I don't think there's a true opposition. I, I think in, on the one hand, in a multicultural society, we don't have what a lot of modern psychologists call borders or boundaries, rather. Um, there are certain societal or cultural cues that develop in a tightly knit community that help govern the life of that community. Some things that you just do, some things that you just don't do. Times when you know the family is going to be eating dinner. Times when you don't you know, expect your employees to show up you know, for other family commitments. So without those kind of cultural commonalities, we don't have healthy boundaries, generally speaking. We don't necessarily know what they are. Many times in school, especially, we were taught to kind of always, you know, be pleasant, get along with everybody, um, be open to every every cultural expression. And, you know, in, in professional development, we're you know taught to, again, be available, be a hard charger, be always, you know, willing to hustle. And so we're kind of taught many subtle ways as we grow up to drop our boundaries or to yeah. sort of abolish them. We need them. Uh, but boundaries aren't the goal. They're not the focus. We need to examine our lives, especially as families, husbands and wives, what are the boundaries that they need personally with each other, with their kids? Uh, how do they teach their children healthy boundaries? But then to realize that, again, those aren't ends in and of themselves. A lot of the self-help literature now 
is is set up to try to help people recover a sense of self and boundaries but that's kind of where it stops as if self-fulfillment which in many ways is just it starts by creating healthy boundaries um, but as if that were the purpose of it all whereas john paul ii speaks beautifully about the logic of the gift whereas it's not in seeking my happiness that will make me happy it's seeking to give of myself that will make me happy happiness is something that happens along the way it's not a really reflective thing it's something that is almost uh, it's very unselfconscious if there's this beautiful statue by bernini of saint Teresa in ecstasy in rome and it, the look on her face it's it's been criticized for being overly sort of sexual very sensual in yep. that way but i think he's getting a point across it's that's very true that her ecstatic experience of God's love in many ways is reflected in the ecstatic experience of human love in characterized by the sexual act. Um, but that, yeah, word- I, th- I think people sort of reverse those, those two, right? I mean, yeah. the, I think the idea is that the sort of the ecstasy of the conjugal act is a reflection or sort of an imitation of the, you know, the union of encounter with God, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. You can speak of any pleasure uh, as as in some ways reflecting or a portion of sort of a shadow experience. of yeah 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 and but the nature of of pleasure is ecstatic ecstasis out of myself yeah. basically or out of the out of my my being um, and to be drawn out of oneself you it's not just with sex you can uh, speak about this with sports being in the zone you know there's a certain uh, flow that sports psychologists describe it rarely happens to me but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you get it or when you're there it, there's something about that that your time is a non-factor yep. you're just sort of in the moment and i think that is another reflection of this all but you see in that there's a lack of self-consciousness there's not a self-referentiality to it if if there were that would sort of ruin it and so i think back to the original point or that question about um you know happiness is something that happens along the way. Self-actualization occurs as I seek the good of the other. Um, you know, a lot of, and this, we have a long way to go because some very well-intended uh, churchgoers, Christians, Catholics, they sort of speak of various works of mercy, for example, according to how fulfilling they are. You know, when even talking about my vocation as a priest, some people say, well, that might be very fulfilling. That must really do a lot for you. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not the point. That's not why it, why we sign up. Um, you know, people do volunteer work because of how good it makes them feel nice. You know, it's better than not doing the volunteer work, but that's still a distortion of the logic of the gift. The logic of the gift is I give and therefore I receive, right? You know, it's, it's sort of a natural sort of a spiritual or a metaphysical consequence of that. Um, so, you know, to kind of clarify or understand that sense of the task of the family is to serve life. And by doing so, they will become more fulfilled. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it's, I mean, it's, it's what the, the essence of the gospel is all about, right? When Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew chapter 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, I must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me mm-hmm. to, to follow Jesus, to be in his footsteps as Catholics means to deny ourselves, but in denying ourselves, we will find ourselves. Right. Um, and that's the, that's the essential truth of the Christian message that is so countercultural but so important, especially for the family, because being in a family, leading a family, parenting children, even sometimes being a sibling, it's a, it can be a challenging and daunting and difficult task, but there is glory in it because it teaches us to be more Christ-like in the constant giving of ourselves. 
One thing I want to ask you before we close, Father, is you mentioned this already a little bit, but there are a lot of irregular situations in today's modern families. People live in single parent households. People have been through multiple failed marriages. Um, People are victims of abuse and violence. As a pastor, what would you want to say to people who are finding themselves in those situations or perhaps just spending time with people in those situations, um, bringing the word of God to them and loving them and bringing them into the church? You know, every, every person is a person and every person has a story and you know, pastoral care always has to emphasize that, that you're, you're dealing with people, not just situations or theoretical problems. Um, and so to, to kind of recognize that and that the salvation of souls is always the number one prerogative and that has to come through a lot of tenderness, caring, uh, patience, compassion, and you know, friendliness that that old adage counts. They don't care how much you know before they know how much you care. Um, that the church does care. That's why she's making a point to name these things. In our society, naming sounds like blaming. And you know, how you say something is as important as what you're saying. But in these irregular situations, it doesn't help anybody to say that they're not irregular or as if there's nothing wrong. You know, if if um, you know, if a, a friend of mine lost a limb in, in battle, I wouldn't be doing him any good and say, oh, you know, that's, yeah, that's just fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're just like everybody else. Well, what if he, what if there's something I could do to help him along, you know, to, to live a full life? You know, there's going to be necessarily some things that would not be available without additional help. And so with, with other pastoral situations, there are some things that are going to put people at an objective disadvantage what can we do to try to help them to thrive and help them to sort of you know, um, regain a certain quality of, of life or social relationships? It doesn't come from ignoring the problem or pretending that there is no problem. Um, and, and a lot of times there's a false opposition between Christ the good shepherd and Christ the teacher. You know, they're the same Christ. Jesus came to teach. He gave us doctrine that we might have life. Uh, but, you know, the, that false opposition between Jesus as teacher and Jesus as pastoral care, uh, that, that's false because Jesus does care, which is one of the reasons why he tells us right. the, the truth. But he also shows us the way and he gives us the life to be able to sustain that way. Um, and that, that's why he gives us each other. He gave us the church for that same reason, to not only continue his prophetic mission of, of teaching and instructing and naming what is good and naming what is what is false, but also to help people along the way to be that place where they know that they are cared for. And this is a very important expression of that care. Uh, Frank Sheet has a beautiful formulation in his little book, Map of Life, where he talks about the threefold truth being you know, the way, the truth, and the life that, that Jesus models for us. And you're right, we can't, have, uh, we can't have the love without the truth as well. Those things need to go hand in hand. And together they will lead us to the supernatural life. The final thing I want to run by you, there's this, wonderful sentence near the end of this exhortation in section 86 in the conclusion where John Paul II writes, you know, I'm writing to all of you married couples, fathers and mothers, young men and women, venerable and dear brothers in the Episcopate and in the priesthood, upright men and women who for any reason, whatever, give thought to the fate of the family. And then he says, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. What do you make of that? Oh, it's absolutely true. And I think, as I said earlier, a lot of the focus on different symptoms of social failure, whether it's poverty, drug use, depression, uh, you name it, 
they all can be traced back in some way, shape, or form to a failure in the family or some breakdown of the family. And so I've heard it said, we, we've heard the, the phrase most likely, uh, the preferential option for the poor. Most recently, I've heard a number of theologians and, and pastors in the church speak about a preferential option for the family. That if you know, we will always have the poor with us, yes, we know, and we have a responsibility to care for them. Uh, but the family is such a precedent reality that we have to focus in many ways there first to try to make that as healthy as possible and everything that that involves. So yeah, to, to see that the future of humanity passes by way of the family, we can spend all sorts of energy with Band-Aids doing all sorts of good work. And I don't want to minimize any of the good work that's been done. But if we don't go to the source and try to heal it from the very core, then we're all always just going to be sort of ice skating uphill. I think that's absolutely right. And we'll end there because we are just about out of time, Father. But thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you back on again soon sometime to talk about. Maybe we'll bring you on for an encyclopedia episode. Sure. You can hear the you can hear the jingle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that'd be great if you uh if you think I'm worthy. But I think maybe we can uh continue to tie these back to the Tarantino talk and we can call this John Paul Unchained. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. To our listeners, I would love to hear your comments and feedback. If you want to leave something for me or have me get a message to Father Jim, I'd be happy to do that. You can email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. We'll be back next week for more content. In the meantime, if you're in Colorado, come to Mass with us at Holy Apostles Church in Colorado Springs. Thank you once again, Father Jim. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Zach. Thank you.